0: Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Go ahead and open up to First Peter. Kids, y'all can head on back to the back. First Peter, chapter one, this morning. If you've been here the last couple weeks, if you've listened online, listened to the podcast, you know that we're in First Peter and we're hearing the words of a man. Uh, that is trying his best to bolster and fortify uh, believers over a huge area of of Asia and the Roman Empire uh, that are dealing with persecution, that are dealing with persecution that is at a a level that even we're not familiar with, but uh, at, at least at least here in, in America, but it's about to be ramped up to uh, uh, an even higher level. Peter's seeing it happen in Rome, and his assumption is that it's about to spread throughout all of Asia, and he wants to encourage them, he wants to give them uh, emotional and spiritual strength to endure what is happening and what is about to happen to them. Uh, and in doing so, he doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't bother with some emotional kind of rah-rah pep talk, that is not his, uh, kind of how he, he operates here. He is not here to say, it's all going to be alright and everything is is good. He's not here to, uh, you know, just kind of cheer them on. But instead, he goes straight for the deep end of the theology pool. He talks about things that make Christians today nervous. Things that even though we have, uh, we've had Peter's writings for uh, for, for so long, Today, it still makes us nervous to talk about these things, but he doesn't blink. He talks about salvation. He talks about the grace and the mercy of election. He talks about perseverance, eternal security, and inheritance. And he talks about the sanctification uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit through our suffering. And that's just in the first nine verses of this book that he covers all this theological uh, ground. It is a toward force of theology and one of the clearest teachings about how the trinity works and how it powerfully works in our uh, salvation and in our sanctification what seems clear is peter launches into this uh, this teaching about theology just kind of one after another just kind of beats us over the head with it what seems clear in this letter is that he is fired up about the theology I mean, he is passionately engaged in this teaching. He is on fire. This is not some boring preacher, and this is not some academic thought exercise talking about theology. He is full of emotion, and it is pouring out of him as he implores uh, these Christians to understand what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in their salvation. Again... That's just the first nine verses. I wonder, when you think of Christianity, do you think of emotion like that? Do you think of passion? Do you think of energy and excitement? Do you think of, of, of someone and, and, and a group of people who are passionately, energetically excited about what God has made them? Or do you think of stodgy, boring, lack of energy, angry, rule-laden, fun-avoiding, sleepy, stoic. What do you associate with Christianity? What do you associate with a Christian faith? If you're here and, you, and, you're, and you're not a Christian, what has been your take on what, what a Christian faith looks like, what you've seen from the outside? For those of you that are here that have been a part of Providence or have been a part uh, of a church maybe, maybe all, all your life, what's been your takeaway? When you show up at church on a Sunday morning, do you, do you expect passion and excitement or do you expect to be kind of lulled to sleep? No comments about me as the preacher. I'm just saying generally, what do you think of whenever you're thinking about Christianity and whenever you think about uh, our faith? I think we have done a disservice to the name of Christ when we have so misrepresented our faith that people see our beliefs as judgmental and boring. But I think that's exactly what many people see in us. Now that I've put a ton of pressure on myself for the rest of this sermon, we're going to keep on going here and I'll see if I can live up to it. Uh, But seriously, if if we see our faith as tame or boring, then, then we simply don't understand what the Christian faith is about. We simply don't understand anything that Peter has told us so far. We do not understand the grace of God. We do not understand how desperately we need him in our lives if we see it as boring. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying that Peter is super exciting here in the sense that he's told a great story, that he's been super funny, that he's been this engaging speaker. He is simply passionate about the theology that he is teaching because the theology is what fires him up because he's lived it. He's known what it means to desperately need grace. He's known what, it's mean, what, it, what it means to, to, to walk away and to turn your back on the one that, that you confess to, to love and follow to death. And he knows what it means to be restored. He has lived it. And this is what Peter is going to talk to us about this morning morning, and what he's going to tell us this morning, that our faith is too rich, too deep too old, too miraculous, too wonderful for us not to treasure it, and frankly, for us to half-heartedly follow it. So let's see how Peter works to teach us and to shape our hearts this morning. Let's see what it is that Peter wants us to see. Our text is going to be First Peter uh, 1, 10 through 12, but before we get there, I want to remember how he ends uh, in the passage just before that in verses 8 and 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, Uh, though you do not see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls we talked about different parts of that especially the rejoicing with with joy last week Uh, the part that i want to kind of highlight here is, is where he says though you have not seen him you love him though you do not see him now you believe in him He highlights uh, that even though these believers in Asia, and now us uh, as well, we have not seen Jesus. We did not have the advantage that Peter had. We did not walk with him. We did not sit directly under his teaching. We did not know him in that same way. We did not see him risen. We did not see all of those things, but we still love Jesus, and we still believe Jesus. For Peter... That is not a testimony to our greatness, that is a testimony to the grace of God and his salvation working in us. So he says that, that, that belief and love that we have for this Jesus that we've never seen will in the end see us through to our full salvation. Then Peter finally takes a break here in verse 10. He finally takes a break from this intense theological presentation that he's just laid out. He takes a breath to reflect a bit on what he's just said. And he's going to tell us uh, about how we're not the only ones who have not seen Jesus. But in fact, most haven't seen Jesus. In fact most of us haven't seen him at all not just those like us that have come after Jesus but those that came long before Jesus as well So let's read our text and we'll talk through a couple of different parts of it So 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 Concerning the salvation the one I just spent 9 verses telling you about the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that you have now, be, things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in, into which angels long to look. So Peter is telling us that that we may be blessed as ones that came after Jesus, but it was those who were long before him that even then they sought to understand this salvation. They sought to understand how God would do it. They sought to understand what it would look like when the Messiah came. How would God do this? How would God make Israel a light to the nations? How would God draw the nations to Himself? How would God make atonement for the sin that was committed in the garden and that was then committed by every person after Adam and Eve? How would He redeem what had been lost on that day of the fall? And it tells us that they wrote their prophecies, not for themselves primarily, but in order to serve us. So why does Peter stop and talk about this? Why does Peter take the time to talk about stuff that was written uh, hundreds or thousands of years before him? Why does Peter stop for a few minutes in this middle of all this theology to reflect on how we got here? What is he getting at? What is he trying to tell us? I think what he's doing is he's teaching us a very key point about Hermeneutics. Now, if you don't know what that word means, it's kind of a funny sounding word. It simply means how to study, interpret, and apply the Bible. All right? So he's teaching us some key principles about how we study the Scripture and how we apply the Scripture. He's telling us that, just, uh, that, that these prophets, that they wrote as they wrote the Old Testament, as they wrote their prophecies, they were studying, they were listening, they were trying to understand what salvation would look like what the Messiah would be like, what He would do when He came, when He would come, where He would come, what He would be like. And they were even kind of given glimpses. But as they wrote these things, and they they wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit, as they wrote these things... They, they understood some level of what they were writing. They understood some uh, kind of brief or immediate application. But in a larger sense, they really didn't understand how these things were going to work out. Because they weren't primarily writing for them. They weren't primarily writing for their own audience. But instead, they were writing for an audience to come. So that whenever they could look back on these prophecies and whenever they could read these, they could know, oh, now I see the Messiah. Now I see who this is. They wrote what they were shown and they knew that while it may have some relevance now that it would have a fuller and a ultimately uh, kind of serve those that came long after them even more than it did them in those moments. There's a lot of examples of this. There's a lot of examples we could talk about but let's just look at the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there are four different passages. There's all kinds of prophecy mixed in there. There's all kinds of things that Isaiah is doing in his book. But in there, there are four different passages that are known as the servant songs. Four passages known as the servant songs. And in each of these, you see some aspect of what the Messiah would be like. Some aspect of what it would be like when the Messiah came. Some aspect of what he would do, or where it would be, or how he would act. ...or what he would accomplish. The most well-known of these is going to be in Isaiah 52 and 53. This is what we read uh, a lot whenever we... In in various different contexts, you hear it a lot around Easter, Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm going to read just one small little snippet here. I wish I could read the whole thing, but for time, I won't. But Isaiah 53, uh, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You hear those words, and immediately you start thinking about Jesus... When Isaiah wrote these words, he wasn't necessarily thinking about Jesus. He was just writing about this servant that is to come. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All, like, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I wish I could read all four of these these servant songs and kind of lay out how Isaiah was talking about this Messiah that was to come, even though he didn't fully understand what it was going to be like whenever Jesus got here. He didn't fully understand, he didn't know that Jesus was the one, he simply knew the Messiah was coming and he was going to write this talking about a servant. It's Isaiah's description of the Messiah. We know he's talking about Jesus. Jesus. Peter knows he's talking about Jesus. You can see that if you just flip over in First Peter chapter uh, 2, just flip over one chapter from where our text was. And in First Peter chapter 2, 22 through 25, he says this. He committed no sin. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Does that sound familiar? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in teaching us about the work of Jesus, Peter uses the words of Isaiah. Whenever he wants to reflect back on what Jesus has done, he borrows the words of the prophet in order to describe and to say, this was the Messiah that Isaiah foresaw in part, but now we know in full as we look back on who Jesus is. Peter uses the words. And even though Isaiah didn't fully understand what Peter now does, we are able to process through all of that and work through that together. This teaches us something about how scripture works. For those of you that were here on Thursday for our class, we talked about this uh, in our class. This is exactly what we discussed. Peter's point in bringing up all of this, Peter's point in bringing up uh, all of this, uh, these things about the prophets, is that we, like the prophets, never saw Jesus with our own eyes. We, like the prophets, never walked with Jesus. Jesus but we are recipients of what they saw then and now we see clearly as we look back to jesus for peter that's huge that is a huge point that we can't, that he doesn't want to just move right by because for peter it anchors our faith this is not something that he just made up this is not a story he just created within the last you know 30 or 40 years this is not something that he made up after jesus died and he had to try to figure out how to save face this is nothing like that for peter this anchors what he's seen and what he's witnessed but he anchors it in the long past and that is a source of praise for him it anchors his faith and it should anchor our faith as well it should it should establish a point of praise for us now today in the present this is something that I think Christians today have done a very, very poor job at in a lot of circles. Ours, church plant, non-denominational, that is, that is a, a big time place for us to think that everything that's happened in the Christian faith has happened for us here in the last, you know, like 10 years. Because we're not tied to a denomination with a long traditional history, which means we don't have a lot of baggage of unbiblical things, but it also means that we've lost a, a ton in our past. And so we would do well, especially in our situation as a non-denominational church that's only 10 years old, we would do well not to shun our history, but to embrace the Christian faith and the, Christian, and the, the history of the church as a whole. We would, we would do well for that. To, to do that. That is a point that should be a point of celebration and further understanding for us, not one to dismiss and to, to, to kind of push off. In an effort to not sound old or boring or ir- irrelevant, so many Christians today have, have dismissed a rich, deep, profound history have dismissed a rich tradition in favor of of something that was created in Nashville by a record label and a marketing company. That is not the Christian faith. I'm not just talking about music. I'm talking about something that was more fully fully, uh, created and and established than just music. I'm talking about the the whole of Christianity. Christianity. The reality is the church today, especially the church here in the South, looks a whole lot more like something that was fabricated in the last twenty years than something that was created thousands of years ago. And that is not good for us. That is that, that, if I, I've said this before in different contexts, if I were to create a religion today, if I were to just just kind of go off and say, I'm gonna create a religion. Do you know one of the things that I would desperately want to try and figure out is how to attach that religion to something in the far past so that I can pretend that it isn't something I just made up. But somehow Christians who have this deep, rich history of prayer, of, of, of the creeds, of hymns, of all these other things that, that, have, that have been handed down to us for thousands of years, we have said, I don't want any of that. Instead, I'd rather just have the new stuff and pretend this whole wealth of stuff doesn't exist. I don't understand why we would for, forsake something that is such a, a core anchor for Peter and should be for us. We must do better at recovering church history and 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 the the creeds and the uh the things that have rooted and established our faith for thousands of years for peter it's a point of celebration and hope not something to be dismissed as irrelevant and boring we would do well to practice it more to know it better instead of running from it because we're afraid it's not very marketable so when Peter concludes this little section he 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 concludes with this odd phrase and this will be the focus for the rest of our uh, our rest of our time together this morning um, but let's look again how he 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 concludes this on this little phrase. So 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. He says, "It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which Angels long to look. That is an interesting phrase. Things to which angels long to look. Angels are a funny thing for humans and for Christians because we like to talk about angels. They are a subject of interest, uh, e- even for non-religious uh, people, for non-church folk. Uh, angels seem to like creep in in all kinds of different ways, although. Their depiction is, even by Christians, almost universally ridiculous. Almost universally nothing like what we see uh, in Scripture. Every time you see an angel in Scripture, people hit the ground because it scares them to death. Uh, not to mention, you know, they've got, uh, like, like, covered in eyes, and they've got the wings, and they've got all this other stuff. It looks nothing like all this other stuff. Uh, that, that, that we see portrayed in the movies and things like that. But that doesn't stop us from being uh, interested in angels. But, but what's interesting here is whenever you see this, uh, Peter says we shouldn't be all that interested in the angels. In fact, the angels seem pretty interested in what's happening with us. Uh, in, my, in, in my preparation for this sermon, I came across an article by a pastor uh, in, in Middle Tennessee called Justin uh, Dilhay. You can, you can look up the article. It's in, on the Gospel Coalition. It helped me uh, see a lot of what Peter was talking about here. It helped me kind of process through this. You see, angels are in a very interesting position. They are spectators, onlookers. They are able to see behind the scenes the drama of human history. At key moments, there are a few of them that get involved in the drama. There are a few of them that show up in the story. But for the most part, uh, they, are, they, they are there watching this story of human history unfold. They're, um, no, they're not omniscient. They don't know all. They don't know the story that's going to happen uh, before it happens. They don't, they don't know what's going to happen. So they are, they are watching to understand and to see how's this going to go down all they know is what they've seen and what they've been told and then they respond to those things they respond to the things that they see and to what they've been told now i'm not going to give a full theology of angels here we don't have the time and i don't know that i have the brain power for that but but there are a few moments that we should probably point out if we want to gain a fuller understanding of this little phrase that peter kind of throws in there you see Angels were there when God began this story of human history. We don't exactly know when God created them, but we know they were there, uh, that they were there whenever God created the earth and whenever God created us, humans. So Job 38, 4 through 7 says this Where were you? This is God talking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its ba- it, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That verse 7 there where it talks about the morning stars sang together and all the, all the sons of God shouted for joy. That is generally understood to be talking about angels. So they may not know everything But they did get the the behind-the-scenes look that no one else got to see. They did get to see in a way that no one else was able to understand. I wonder what they thought when Adam and Eve took a bite from the apple, from one of their former peers, from Satan himself. I wonder what they thought as they watched that play out. After all, they knew Satan had been banished, fallen from heaven like lightning, it says. So what would happen to Adam and Eve? I wonder if they didn't just sit there and wonder, okay, this is what happened to him. Now what's going to happen to them? I wonder what they thought whenever God made provision for them after for Adam and Eve uh, after after their their sin in the garden. They they had seen Satan banished, but but now Adam and Eve they didn't quite receive the same reaction. I don't know what they thought. I don't know how they would have processed that. But they saw it all happen. And they must have wondered what God was going to do and how he was going to do it. Would he banish them? Would he punish them forever? Or was this going to play out differently? I read a sermon by... Charles Spurgeon he was talking about this passage and he he cites the ark of the covenant uh, and the, the 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 way the ark of the covenant was made there's two cherubim that are uh, on the, the 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 top of the ark they're uh, looking at one another and they are looking down and uh, and the way that Spurgeon talks about this is he he sees that um that that picture of the, of the two angels on top of the ark is a precursor to what we read here in First Peter 12, that they are looking into our salvation, that this is a kind of prefiguring of that. So he said that they stand intently, gazing into the marvel of propitiation by blood. And so that's an early picture of what the angels are doing here, longing to look into our salvation salvation he goes on to say that if heaven were to open up above us if today we were to walk out we were all ready to go home heaven were to open up and we were able to see into heaven we were able to see the angels we would all universally be amazed by that we would be transfixed by that we wouldn't be able to take our eyes off of it but he laughs and he chuckles at what the scene would be because as we would be looking up there at them they would be looking back down here at us Interested in what's happening with us and what God is doing here. Waiting to see what God would do next in this grand story of human history. In the book of Hebrews, the writer gives us two kind of sustained chapters. I don't think as we read these, we typically think of them this way. But at the end of chapter 1 and almost all of chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is talking about angels. And he's talking about how our salvation plays out in comparison to the angels. He talks about angels, humans, and why Jesus needed to become a man. A little lower than the angels is what the writer of Hebrews says. After spending a chapter and a half laying out the difference between man, angels, and Jesus, this was the conclusion from the writer of Hebrews. He says, for surely it is not angels that he helps God, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's incredible, really. What you see here is it is not the angels that he helps, but instead he comes to intercede for us. Even though we are lower than the angels, the angels do not get the same treatment we do. God chose to intercede for us where he did not make that choice for the angels. Again, I say this all the time, but just comparing what happened with, with, uh, with the angels that rebelled versus what happened with us when he rebelled. God is under no obligation to redeem us. You know, we, we talk about forgiveness of sin as though it is, it is just an expected reality that God would do that. He's under no obligation to. He could have turned his back on, uh, on us the same way that he did on the angels when they rebelled. But he did not. He intercedes. I want you to listen to how this pastor uh, that I cited earlier, I want you to listen to how he says this. I think this is great. Angels may be greater in power, but saints are greater in privilege. Because you have something they don't Jesus did something for you that he never did for them If you could somehow talk to an angel and ask what's got you so curious? Why are you so interested in my little life? He would say it's because I have a creator But you have a redeemer That's how much god loves you When the devil drew a third of the angels after him god said let them go But when the devil drew god's human children after him god said I want them back In my holy name, I will have them back, whatever it takes. That is a powerful picture of what God has done on our behalf. This is what Peter is celebrating here. He's talking about how the prophets saw it in part. He's talking about how even the angels would would long to know this in a way that they can't know it. Because God didn't do it for them. It should get you fired up it gets Peter fired up. I think it's exactly what Peter is trying to tell us in that little phrase. The prophets wanted to see Jesus. The angels want to know Jesus like we can know Jesus. But we sit in a place far different from them. We know what Jesus has done. And we can experience that redemption through the atoning death of Jesus. And we can experience victory over sin and death because of his victorious resurrection. And that is done for us. That is done for those that will respond to that call. I started this out by saying that we should not see our salvation as boring or dismiss it as too academic or theological to be interesting. We should not, and it seems clear that the angels do not. It is an endless source of fascination for them. In fact, they long to know what it might be like to be able to take part in this grand drama of redemption. You, however, do not have to wonder. You do not have to wonder what it is to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be given another chance, to be able to start over, to be able to come back to God. You don't have to wonder what that's like because that is there before you. They long to understand it. You can know it and experience it now. Again, something God does not not owe to anyone. It is not owed, but it is given. The angels did not get redemption. We do if you want it. There's an artist that tours with Andrew Peterson, and her name is Jess Ray. She's got some great songs. She's got a, some songs I really love, great lyrically. And she's got one that I think sums up much of what we could say uh, uh, about what the angels uh, feel and, and and what oftentimes I think maybe we feel. She says, talking about our salvation, the same great salvation that, that Peter has spent these opening verses talking about that the prophets... Uh, in part, we're able to teach us and show us what's coming. She says, it's too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. That is our faith. We cannot fully understand the depths of what has happened in our salvation. We cannot fully understand how deeply we need him. We cannot fully understand the, the fellowship that was broken on that day in the garden and every day since and repeatedly by us. We cannot fully understand those things. And if even the bit that we, we do understand, it's got to sound like it's too good to be true because we don't earn back that grace and that mercy. We don't earn back that forgiveness. It is freely given All we do is respond to what is there. It's too good to be understood. But it's not too good to be true. So this morning, my question for you as we wrap up here and as I finish this up, is this something that you long to look into as well? Is this something that excites you and gets you fired up? Or do you simply not understand what God has done for you on your behalf? to me that is that is really the only thing that is there. This is not like it's i 'm just not into theology it 's just not my thing i 'm just not into this stuff like it, it kind of makes my head hurt. I don't, I don't really think about this stuff all this much. I, I'm just not that much into it. It doesn't get me all charged up. I'm much more excited about the NFL game that I'm going to go watch this afternoon. I'm somehow much more excited about watching Tennessee get their brains beating again. I'm much more excited about any of these things. Somehow I'm more excited about those things. I'm just not that excited about theology. If you're not that excited about theology, it's because you don't understand what God has done for you. All, I'm, all, all I, I want is the same thing that Peter wants, is for you to understand that God has worked on your behalf. All I want for you to understand is the same thing that the angels long to understand, and that is that you are, you are the subject of redemption by the blood of Christ. And, and, and you simply respond to that grace that you've been given. Won't you do that this morning? I'm going to be in the back. I'll pray with any of you. I'll I'll be happy to talk with you and work through any of this. As you leave here today, if you find that you are bored by that kind of theology, I would challenge you that you don't understand it, and you do not understand your salvation. And I would challenge you to work and to grow and to push. I would challenge you to understand more of what God has done. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you that we, uh, unlike the prophets, thank you that we, unlike the, 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 the prophets and those in the, uh, the Old Testament that did not fully understand, we have the, the testimony of, uh, of apostles like Peter and of uh, those like Paul that can reflect back on Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, and we can more fully understand what has happened. Thank you that we are not left like angels just longing to understand something, but instead you have given your word, you have given your spirit, and because of those, we can understand and we can grow and we can be redeemed. Father, I pray that you would give us faith, that the the wind of the spirit would blow this morning and that we would not be hooked on some academic dry theology, but that our emotion would be set on fire by the grace that you have shown us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.